So we, we will start with the Prajnaparamita practice and Prajnaparamita is uh, symbolizing true refuge, safe refuge. So what is your safe refuge? It's not something anyone can tell you. Well, I can't tell you, so take refuge. So what would be something, you know, genuinely, which would be a safe place? A place where you feel loved and safe. And something to which you can turn to at any moment. Can you find a longing in you? A longing for the freedom of pain. A longing for love, a longing for freedom, a longing for so what it is, what, what is what your uh, no, so what is your deepest yearning? And uh, so if you feel your deepest yearning, then you, you start to know what you yearn for. Because to yearn for something, to long for someone, you need something, you need to know it already. So if you long for love, you are able to do that because you know how it feels to be loved. If you long for freedom of pain, you are able to long for that because you know something in you already knows how it feels to be free of pain. So, and, and Prajna Paramita is symbolizing that. That what it is for you. You don't need to have a specific name for what your, what your refuge is, your true refuge. But it has something to do also with, it is that what you, what you want to turn to uh, when you're dying soon. What is it what you want to turn to when you're dying soon? It shouldn't be too complicated. Just wait a moment. I need to take out my book, my notebook. <laughs> a teacher, like a geisha in Nalanda, you know, once I was complaining to him, why are you saying the prayers so quick? You know, it's like... <laughs> and, and then he said to me, at your desk time, you don't have a lot of time, you need to do it quick. <laughs> so one, one thing is the longing, to honor the to honor the longing, you know, to pray. Go down on your knees, express your longing. Help me. Come, great mother, whatever that, whatever that is for you. You know, like the say, what I said yesterday, I know you're residing at the center of my heart. Please reveal yourself, I'm ready.
It needs to be genuine. It could be also, uh, you know, a quality <coughs> which you long for, which you have met in other people. So if you kind of, you know, so you, you gather the sense of uh, some people you have met in your life where you feel comfortable with, safe, where you could relax, where you could relax. So that could be a quality worth living for, worth longing for. And, and the Great Mother is uh, symbolizing this. And you know, it doesn't matter what kind of shape she has for you. Where are you turning to when you are stuck, when you feel overwhelmed? So you can also, you know, Acknowledge, so hmm, what I'm turning to actually when I'm not well is, hmm, I think there's room for improvement. Because it's not a safe refuge. And you can, you can also observe here in the retreat, I mean, there's, well, of course, there's, there's moments when we sit here, it's too hot, you know, you're tired, you're bored. You wonder why, I, why you are here. What the heck for did I come again? Oh, I forgot about this, <laughs> that it sucks. But, but um, in these moments, where can you turn to? Whom can you call upon? What is your longing? What can you call into your space so that it becomes bigger? And the Great Mother is, is symbolizing that. So she is, uh, she is symbolizing the awakened state, the awakened state which is already here. It's very important find true refuge. A, a, a true refuge. For personally, for me, I would use a word like loving awareness, which is the Lama. So, kind of my kind of code word for true refuge is the Lama. I just like that word. Not lamas, that and that, the lama. So I call upon the lama. And uh, I'm going to call upon the lama when I die. So that's loving awareness. Okay, so loving awareness, when I say loving awareness, it's also the Another word I use sometimes is the loving gaze. So the loving gaze is imbued with wisdom. The loving gaze loves 
and is imbued with wisdom. What does it mean to be imbued with wisdom? It does not find what it what it what it what it's what what it loves. It does not find what it loves, but it's completely loving. So, just as a invitation uh, for the coming days in the evening, um, you know, to see how can you make this practice genuine for you. I mean, there's so much room for creativity. So if you long, I mean, I guess that's something we can all sign up, sign for, and we long to be free of pain. So if, if that is something you can connect with, allow the Great Mother to symbolize that, being free of pain. And then long for it, because you know what it is. It's already there. The, the space of being free of pain is already there. So let's um, invite her, invoke her. She is so ready to come. Wow. <laughs> When no, she's like sitting everywhere and it's like, when is he calling me? <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> so let's just take some time to sit quietly, uh, relaxing into the softening of the evening. Unhooking from thought, allowing yourself to just rest and be If it's necessary, slightly resting upon a sense object <clears throat> to stabilize the mind. And don't worry if there's dullness and tiredness, just let it fill the space of your experience. Maybe you can sense that there is something bigger 
and all of that. And then we call upon the Great Mother, Prashnaparamita, Goddess, undescribable, ungraspable, golden color sitting mm-hmm. in the lotus, holding a vajra and the Hatsutra, four arms smiling. With her, the presence of your mentors, male and female, Buddhist and non-Buddhist. And with her, all the teachings you have received, teachings which help you to live. Allow and feel her presence in your whole body. You hear her voice, she's alive, like an angel. And her healing presence pervades your whole body from the toes to the top of your head. And she knows exactly what to say. You can smell her, the scent of roses, of healing, of joy. of vitality. Just by sitting in her presence, you become more like her. How does it feel to be safe, to be well, to be healed, to be whole? How does it feel? Then when we recite the mantra, we just continue to sit in her blessings, in her gifts, which are all aspects of your own psyche, of your own mind.
Prajnaparamita, the Great Mother, the Goddess, even more radiant, blissful, happy. And she dissolves into that bliss, that loving bliss, and it fills your body, and you become aware of the Goddess inside, the Prajnaparamita inside. the always present, awakened state. Everywhere and nowhere. Surrounding and underlying everything, pervading everything, not being separated from anything, like a wave not being separated from the ocean. You are Prashna Paramita, you are the goddess, and you are the bird. You are the peace and the stillness of the evening. And the pain. So keep your question for tomorrow. Hopefully you will have forgotten them. <laughs> so this is uh, the beginning of the book. I will just read like 15-20 minutes. If you can't stand it, you are free to go to bed. I finished, I finished writing the letter. It was past 10 o'clock on a hot night in Bhatgaya, in north-central India. And right now, no one else knew. I placed the letter on a low wooden table in front of the chair that I often sat on. It would be discovered sometime the following afternoon. There was nothing left to do. 
I turned off the lights and pushed back the curtain. Outside it was pitch black, with no sign of activity, just as I had anticipated. By 10.30, I began pacing in the dark and, checked and checking my watch. 20 minutes later, I picked up my backpack and left the room, locking the door behind me. In the dark, I tiptoed downstairs to the foyer. At night, a heavy metal bolt secures two thickened wooden doors from the inside. Narrow rect rectangular push-out windows parallel each door and are almost as long. I waited for the red watchman to pass. Once I calculated that he was the farthest from the front door, I opened a window and stepped out onto the small marble porch. I closed the window, flew down the six steps to the brick walkway and quickly moved behind the bushes to the left. That's the abbot. The abbot of this monastery. <laughs> A high metal fence surrounds the compound. The side gate on the ally stays open during the day, but at night it's locked and a guard sits nearby. The front gate is rarely used. High and wide, it opens onto a bypass that connects the main roads that run parallel to each other. The two metal panels of the gate are secured by a heavy chain and a large padlock. To leave without being noticed, I would have to stay out of the watchman's, watchman's side for, this, for his next round. I waited in the bushes for him to pass, once again calculated his distance and run the hundred feet to the main gate. I threw my backpack over the gate, aiming for the grass, grass, grassy area to the side of the black top so that it would land quietly. Besides, my father had told me, when you are on a journey and you come to a wall, always throw your backpack over first, because then you will be sure to follow. <laughs> this, this reminds me of a another advice someone gave me, a teacher, kind of a warrior teacher, he said to me, you have to practice like the Mongolian warriors. When they storm forward, they burned the bridges behind them so they couldn't get back. <laughs> I unlocked the padlock, pushed back the gate, and slipped through. Maybe you remember I told you once the story that I had exactly the same fantasy. Yes. Do you remember I that? remember I thought <laughs> of it. <laughs> I, 
I, I had also that exactly that escape plan from Nalanda. <laughs> <laughs> I was the, only the director, but uh, so I had packed. I, I had to actually pack my bag. I was ready. Mm-hmm. My heart burst with fear and acceleration. The darkness of the night seemed to light up and absorb to light up and absorb all my thoughts, leaving just the shocking, shock, shocking, shocking sensation of being on the other side of the fence in the date in the dead of night, alone outside in the world, for the first time in my adult life. <laughs> I had to force myself to move. I reached around through the bars to close the padlock. Then I picked up my pack and hide on the side of the road. Two minutes before 11, and I was in between one life and the next. My breath thundered in my ears. My stomach tightened. I could hardly believe that so far the scheme had worked perfectly. My senses intensified and and seemed to extend far beyond my conceptual mind. The world suddenly became luminous and I felt as if I could see for miles. But I could not see the taxi. Where's the taxi? (laughs) It had been ordered for 11 p.m. I stepped out onto the bypass to search for headlights. Despite despite strategizing like a jailbird, I had shared my plan with no one and no getaway car was waiting. On the other side of the fence, now behind me, sat Terga, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And I was its prestigious 36-year-old abbot. A year earlier, I had announced my intention to enter an extended retreat. This had not sounded any alarms. Three retreats are common in my tradition. However, it was assumed that I would seclude myself in a monastery or a mountain hermitage. In addition to Terga and Bodhgaya, I have monasteries in Tibet and Nepal and meditation centers throughout the world. But no one anywhere had imagined my true intentions. Despite my revered position, or more precisely because of it, I would not vanish into an institutional or isolated dwelling. I had set my sights on following the ancient tradition of sadhus, the wandering Hindu ascetics who give up all their belongings to live free of worldly concerns. The, the earliest heroes of my own Tibetan Kagyu lineage had followed in the footsteps of the Hindu, Hindu predecessors, taking shelter in caves and forest groves. I would die to my life as a privileged tulku, a recognized incarnation of a spiritual adept. 
I would discard the mantle of being the youngest son of Toku Ugin Rinpoche, the esteemed meditation master. I would live without attendants and administrators and would exchange the protection granted by my role as abbot and lineage holder for the anonymity that I had never known but had long, but had, but had long yearned for. My wristwatch read 10 after 11. My plan was to take the midnight train to Varanasi. The train left from the Gaia station, just eight miles away. I had ordered the taxi earlier that evening while coming home from the Mahabodhi temple, the historic site that commemorates the Buddha's great, awake, the Buddha's great awakening under a Bodhi tree. An offshoot of the original tree marks the heart of this sprawling temple complex, and pilgrims from all over the world come to sit under, it, under its leaves. I went there often, but this particular evening I, spe I specifically went to do Kora, ritual circumambulation, and to offer butter lamps as a way of praying for my retreat to go well. I had been my I had been accompanied by my longtime attendant, Lama Soto. <coughs> Headlights appeared and I stepped out onto the road. A jeep drove past. After another ten minutes, I once again saw headlights. When a large cargo truck came barreling toward me, I jumped back and slipped in the mud puddle. When I pulled my foot out, one of my rubber flip-flops got stuck. I retrieved it, then continued to hide my hands wet with slimy muck. My enchantment vanished. <laughs> <laughs> And ag agitation rolled in like fog. Anyone who frequented this road would recognize me. No one had ever seen me unaccompanied. Not at this hour, not at this hour, not at any hour. I had taken the taxi for granted. I had no idea what I would do after I reached Varanasi, but at this moment it seemed critically important not to miss the train. <laughs> <laughs> I had no backup plan. Plan. I began walking quickly towards the main road, sweat, sweating from heat and excitement. <laughs> Earlier in the evening, Lama Sota and I had been driven to the Mahabodhi temple in the Tega jeep, a distance of about two miles. We had passed the small shops that line the main road, convenience stores that sell dry goods, a few restaurants, computer cafes, souvenirs and trinket shops and travel bureaus. Cars and taxis, bicycles and rickshaws crowded the road, along with tuk-tuks, the three-wheeled motorized contra contraptions, contraptions that make a racket. As the road approaches the temple entrance, beggars line the street, holding out their arms bowls. 
On the way back to Tega, we had stopped at the office of a travel agent, where I had ordered a taxi to come to the main gate of the monastery at 11 o'clock. We had spoken in English, so Lama Sopa, who spoke only Tibetan, knew nothing of this arrangement. I was on the bypass halfway toward the main road when the taxi finally appeared. After 30 minutes in the world on my own, the, the, the confines of a car provided unexpected comfort. Several times each day since I was little, I had recited prayers that included, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, and in Sangha, the enlightened assembly. Now I noticed that I was taking refuge in this taxi. <laughs> and was grateful for its shelter. I found myself thinking about Naropa, the learned abbot of the Buddhist university Nalanda. I knew that he had left his exalted position to seek a higher level of wisdom than he had yet accomplished. But, but I had never, thought, never before thought about the circumstances of his departure. I wonder if he started out totally alone. Perhaps an attendant was waiting outside the gates with a horse. That's how Prince Siddhartha escaped from his father's kingdom. He had confined it in his charioteer, and they had made a secret arrangement. As the taxi sped towards Gaia, my body went forward as my mind went backward. The carefully constructed departure suddenly felt yearing. During the previous weeks, I had envisioned how the events of this evening would unfold. Now, now I watched the same movie in reverse, starting in the present and going backward, and accepting that there are different ways to say goodbye. Lama Sopa and I had returned to Tega from the Mahabodhi, Mahabodhi temple by 7 o'clock, and I had gone straight to my private room on the second floor of my house. My apartment consists of a large, large receptions room for meeting guests, which leads to a second room where I practiced and slept. The house sits behind the central temple, which is the size of a village block. Traditional ornamental designs cover every wall, each column and the entire ceiling of the temple. A huge golden Buddha rises from the shrine and directly faces the main gate and beyond that, the Mahabodhi temple. Earlier in the day, I had circumambulated the marble portico that runs along the outside walls and had gone upstairs to the balconies that overlooked the main room, all the while silently saying goodbye. Close to my house are the guest house and administrative office, offices. Behind these buildings are the dormitories and classrooms for about 150 young monks who range in age, range in age from 9 to 20. I had passed by every room, walked down every corridor, not quite believing that I might not see any of this again for a long time. I planned to stay away for at least for at least three years. 
I had done everything I could ensure. I could to ensure the continu continued welfare and training of the monks. I hoped I hadn't missed any important details. Lama Sopa had come to my room at about nine o'clock to check if I needed anything before he retired. Orig originally from Kem, Kham, an area of eastern Tibetan, of an area of eastern Tibet known for its strong, tough men, he had been my attendant for the last ten years since I was twenty-six, and had shielded me in a crowd like a bodyguard. His room was on the first floor of my house. The door to my private rooms had creaked so loudly that in preparation for sneaking out, I had greased its hinges. <laughs> Two weeks earlier, I had informed Lama Sopa and the monastery administrators that I, was not to be, that I was not to be disturbed before noon each day. This unusual request suggested that I would be practicing meditation that should not be interrupted. But really, this would allow me to be far away before my absence was discovered. What, was, what most appealed to my sense of mischief was obtaining a key to the front gate. I traveled frequently between my monastery in India and Kathmandu, and during a previous visit to Bodhgaya, I had informed the head of maintenance that the gate needed to needed a more substantial substantial pack padlock and that I would buy one on my next visit to Delhi. To this end Lama Sopa and to this end Lama Sopa and I had gone to Delhi one afternoon, ambling through a section of the market that featured featured locksmiths. When I returned to Bodgai I I accompanied the maintenance super, supervisor to the gate in order to replace the old lock. The new lock came with three keys, and I handed him two, but kept one. This also provided me with a chance to swing the gate back and forth in order to test its weight and the noise it made. The Mahabodhi, the Mahabodhi, the Mahabodhi temple was now barely out of sight. Yet I, I, I already knew something of the need to nourish the steady awareness of Buddha mind. When I had entered the taxi, the agitation in my voice had made the driver accelerate to dangerous speeds. Temples and stupas, buildings that house sacred relics, reflect the heart and mind of the Buddha. Respecting outside forms of Buddha nourishes our own innate wisdom. Yet the true Buddha, the awakened essence of mind, exists within each one of us. My heart was beating fast. Between the speed of the taxi and the darkness, I couldn't see anything out of the window. Images moved through my mindscape faster than the speed of the taxi. According to scientists, 50 to 80,000 thoughts pass through the mind in one day but it felt like that many in one minute. The faces of relatives appeared before me. My mother, Sunam Shudran, and grandfather, Tashi Dorje, in the quarters at Özeling, my monastery in Kathmandu. 
I imagined monastery officials and nuns and monks meditating in formal shrine rooms. I saw friends sitting in European cafes or in Hong Kong eating at large round tables in noodle restaurants. I, ima I imagined their astonishment on learning of my disappearance. Yours will drop. Faces would, would fall forward, <laughs> leaning, into the, leaning into the news. I watched amused, but my amusement did, did not extend to my mother. When I saw her face, I knew how worried she would be, and I just had to trust in my father's advice. In 1996, I had visited my father at Nagi Gompa, his hermitage on an isolated mountainside outside Kathmandu. He had been sick with diabetes, but no change in his physical condition indicated that he was close to dying. As it turned out, he died two months later. We were in a small room, a space of not more than 10 by 10 feet, that sat perched on the roof of his house. His retinue resided on the lower floors. The room had a big picture window that looked out over the valley. He was the abbot of a small nunnery, and for his teachings, the nuns crowded into this little space. He sat on a raised, wrecked, angular box. This is where he slept. And it was from here that he taught. His lower body was covered with a blanket. I sat before him on the floor. As usual, he, in, he initiated the conversation by asking, Do you have any issues to discuss with me? I told him that I wanted to do a wandering retreat. He looked down at me. Ami, he said using a Tibetan term of endearment. Listen to me, Ami. Are you sure? Really sure? I told him, yes, I'm sure. I have wanted to do this since I was a little boy. Then my father said, wonderful. <laughs> But if you really want to do this, I have one piece of advice. Just go. <laughs> Don't tell anyone where you're going, including our family members. Just go, and it will be good for you. I had not forgotten his advice, even though 15 years had passed before I used it. For decades, I think it's good enough. <laughs> to continue tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you.